Hello and welcome to Techno Social. Today's interviewee was Alexander Bino of Revel Wisdom, which is a, a new alternative media platform on YouTube. We spoke about political polarization, we spoke about personal growth and shadow integration, and we also spoke about death. Indeed, and how um, many of these concepts have been left behind and need to be re-examined. We need to re-examine ourselves and the way we think in order to have the kind of mature and tolerant discussions that are necessary in order to solve the pressing problems of our age. Hope you guys enjoy. Social. So today we're here with Ali from Rebel Wisdom. We're actually at Rebel Wisdom HQ at the moment. Mm. It's the fancy art in the background. It's very <laughs> wicked. Um, so cheers for coming on. Um, you guys are a big influence on us, really. Mm. We're really interested in the stuff you're doing. And But one thing that I have struggled to explain to people about Rebel Wisdom when they ask what this thing is, is what is it? So <laughs> that's where I want to start. What is uh, Rebel Wisdom? Join the club, man. Uh, it's, yeah, it's, well, we are, okay, really basically I'd say we're a media platform. Mm. Uh, maybe you could, maybe you could say an alternative media platform. Um, in that it's alternative to the mainstream media. And we are also, um, we also run events and we also run retreats. So we, we do a few things. But I think everything we're doing is about finding, uh, interviewing rebellious thinkers, um, coming out with and kind of exploring where the rebellious ideas in the culture. Um, but a very specific type of rebellious idea, it's got, it's got to have wisdom in it. And I think wisdom is, I heard a John Verveke, uh, his do, who's, um, a cognitive scientist doing a really interesting series at the moment. He, uh, described wisdom in part as being able to see through illusions, being able to see through kind of a closed framework. And so I think that's a really important thing. I think we're trying ourselves and then hopefully with the audience as well, trying to help people make sense of the world, make sense of a really fragmented, changing world where the old institutions that we used to use to make sense of the world aren't really fit for purpose anymore. Everything is uh, quickly becoming decentralized and that requires a whole new way uh, maybe to, to put it really really big frame a whole new way of being a human being in a lot of ways um, and a whole new set of skills so we're kind of it we're, we're on a I guess we're on a journey of exploration and inquiry as well into what uh, what what is needed in order to let's say shift to a uh, better or let's say more sustainable paradigm for the way we perceive the world, the way we connect with each other, the way we um, run society. You know, we're not trying to change the world, but I suppose we're trying to. Uh, I guess the whole thing, like like any kind of journalistic or even uh, artistic. Uh, project is about finding truth to some degree and trying to see how um, yeah how can we find the most true thing at the moment mm. yeah it feels like there seems to be a bit of a, a hungering for this in the climate at the moment in, in the last couple of years mm. I think kind of 
there's something happened with this Jordan Peterson phenomenon mm. whenever that was the kind of end of 2017 yeah. and then I think as I kind of I think you guys kind of emerged sort of a few months after that yeah. and I I discovered Jordan Peterson end of 2017 and started listening to some of his talks and I was like okay this guy's talking about stuff that you just haven't heard in the mainstream before mm. but what was interesting is then that more and more people of this kind of wisdom um, yeah. wisdom branch of thought that you've kind of spoken of have, have been emerging and there's some fascinating conversations emerging mm. far beyond anything that it begun with I think one of the things I like about your movies is you say it's an evolving conversation yeah. and I think there's a sense that we don't really know where we're going Yeah, there is just an evolution in thought mm. and, but also being and again that's one of the really interesting things that you guys do is that you have a platform, but it's not just about ideas and thinking. Yeah. Having been to your events, there's a lot of the the personal growth stuff, meditation and mm. inquiry into self. Um, is that a big part of the vision that you see towards which you're moving? Yeah, yeah that's a good question. It is uh, definitely a huge part of it. And we, uh, like David and I, are both trained as counsellors, and I have a background uh, teaching meditation. We've both done a lot of um, uh, inner growth work and retreats and uh etc so we uh actually started like the rebel wisdom name and the brand actually came because we were creating the men's work um side of what we were doing that came before the youtube channel um and then david was very sharp on jordan peterson being like the jordan peterson phenomena let's say so we were you know um talking about it and then he just went out to um, Canada to see one of the Bible lectures and was like, well, I mean, I'm a journalist. Maybe I can just get an interview. And he did, which was great. And it wouldn't have happened, I think, three months later. It just wouldn't have happened, right? Mm-hmm. Because it was just, he just kind of, it was right before he, like, he was known, but he wasn't, like, mainstream known. So then the media side, uh, the first thing we put out was Truth in Time of Chaos mm-hmm. and then Glitch in the Matrix. And so there was, the, like, the Jordan Peterson phenomena um, was certainly not just about Jordan Peterson, right? It was about something much bigger, as, mm-hmm. as I think you're talking about. Um, and part of what was so interesting for me was that he was bringing out... Um, the inner growth stuff and, and, you know, Jungian psychology and the mythic substrate, uh, of, um, you know, of human, the human psyche. But uh, above all, I think the most important thing he was bringing out was the idea of some higher order purpose and meaning that binds everything together. Mm-hmm. I think that is the thing that is ultimately the most important, um, and the thing that's missing and driving us all a little bit. Uh, insane um you know it's like nietzsche talked about the death of god Mm. it's very much that i think we're living through what happens when you have a god-shaped hole in the culture um and the challenge is how to fill that hole with an authentic um transcendent way of being that doesn't fall into all the traps of like the gurus and the cults and all the bullshit that kind of came out in the 60s Mm. not really sure anyone has a solution to that um, my solution is to focus on the individual, which is also, I mean, is, I think one of the strongest bits of Jordan Peterson's message as well. And one probably get flack for with like activist friends I have who are very much thinking on like a systems level. And it's like, no, like don't focus on the person. It's like, but there is just like, there are systems certainly and systems behave differently. But I think what we are looking at is a time where we all have to level up. 
in ourselves in many different ways. And in order to level up, you've got to do the work. And there's no shortcut to that. Uh, there's a lot of kind of Silicon Valley people who are kind of like hacking states and putting on like meditation helmets and, and stuff. Mm-hmm. And it's, you know, it's all, it's for me, it's all just another form of narcissism. And like, there's, there is no substitute to hard graft anytime, you know, any skill you develop is, is hard graft and, and some element of suffering, some element of sacrifice, because those things are the things that make you more human, I think, and, and uh, what I want to say, like, better human, but, like, certainly more um, present in the world, mm-hmm. and more humble, and more connected, so I think, like, it's not often a message people want to hear, that, you, that, like, we all have to really work hard on ourselves, uh, almost constantly, because um, I think that is what it takes, it's, like, constant mindfulness of, um, you know, what Jordan Greenhall calls sovereignty, our ability mm-hmm. to kind of have agency in the world and, and be able to take ownership of our own responses can take ownership necessarily of how we feel we feel how we feel but we can we can always decide how we respond in relation to whatever's happening and that um doesn't happen without a conscious um decision and attitude of of wanting to do that for example where it really applies is if we're having a difficult conversation about something you and i really disagree about mm-hmm. and i feel myself getting activated and agitated and i want to just like prove you wrong i want to kind of you know win the argument that's a really natural response but there, there's some sense of what i mean by leveling up is like being able to take that step back and saying okay well i might be wrong i might be like you know i'm feeling like i can't even think straight if i'm really feeling like charged up um i had this in (laughs) wilderness festival last year which was yeah yeah it was sorry it was last year wilderness and we did a men's workshop and we did a mixed workshop um and after the men's workshop this guy um he really enjoyed it, and he said, "Oh, you got to uh, tell my friend. You're doing a mix workshop tomorrow. You got to tell my friend about it." And then this woman um, came over, and I, I don't, <laughs> I don't know whether he knew this would happen, but she's like launched into me. I've never met her before. Like just totally agitated. Like you guys are promoting rape culture. Is this? Is that? Like like a million miles a minute. Like just really vicious. And I can remember like feeling like that was the what I was thinking of when I think of sovereignty is like it was so I was so close to snapping but that would have really not helped and as agitated as she was she surely has a reason for her model of reality I think she's completely wrong and I know she's wrong especially about us promoting rape culture so it's set many ways the absolute opposite but um, that's where I always think like those conversations or when that when the leveling up becomes really important and so i was able to kind of say non-reactive uh, even though i felt really pissed off like my, i could feel like my face was flushed i was like you know and <laughs> breathing and able to kind of get to a mutual kind of truce of yeah uh, we're not doing what you think we're doing and mm. i hear you but also i'm going to push back on on certain things uh, i kind of enjoy that kind of conversation as well because it feels like a real challenge <laughs> and it feels like that's the kind of conversations we need to be able to have um so yeah and, and i think in order to do that we need to have a certain attitude towards each other um yeah mm. Wow, yeah, and I, I feel like that's really actually a big issue throughout really all of politics and society nowadays is that people are very, very, have a very hard time like coping with other people having like very differing beliefs to them. Mm. And I think there, there was a good um, study that I 
cannot for the life of me remember what it is, but hopefully I'll go and find it and put it in the description of the video where they found that, and this is in the USA, so this is, you know, a bit different, but they found that in, like, say, the 60s or the 70s, mm-hmm. if you thought one thing about, say, gun laws, you might think something different about healthcare. So you might be totally pro-gun, but then you might want a single-payer healthcare system. Whereas, and that was, like, across everyone. Everyone sort of had very varying beliefs. Whereas now, if you think one thing about gun laws, you probably think, you almost certainly think healthcare should be privatized and abortion should be illegal. Mm. And and then if you think that gun, that gun should be restricted, you probably think healthcare should be public and abortion should be legal. And so... Like, we've kind of seen a lot of sort of camps of sort of ways of thinking yeah. sort of evolve recently that are very unable to engage with one another without just sort of freaking out. And this has really negatively affected sort of political and social discourse yeah. recently. Uh, yeah, I think it's an interesting point because um, the first thing you described is uh, what I would think of as politics, where it's, you know, it's nuanced and there's different, you know, that's how I think politically. I think I don't, probably right of center on a lot of things, but also kind of socially what would be considered fairly very liberal and you know so there's both kind of both going on you can and probably should pick and choose because politics is constantly changing evolving nuance where people don't pick and choose is in religions and that mm. sounds like a religiosity and you know we've talked about this on the channel a few times is religiosity to political discourse and social discourse as well like the social mm. justice much of the social justice stuff uh, feels very much like a um kind of Puritan religion, mm. you know, where there's right thought and there's right speech and there's right, um, yeah, it's very behavioral and mm. very uh, based on value and um, purity. It's very purity focused. Mm. Um, and that, that kind of attitude taken to politics, I think it means that you can't, like you, for example, if you're a Christian, you can go. Yeah, I really like the Psalms, and I really like what Jesus said here. I'm not really into the resurrection. Doesn't really do it for me. <laughs> so you're not a Christian then. You yeah. kind of have to take. And there's of course a lot of variety in Christianity, and there are different, many, many different sects. But there's certain things you have to take part and parcel. And the yeah. resurrection is one of them. You can't just not have that. Um, you like. So it sounds like you know. I, I have thought about this before. A little bit. It's, it kind of sounds like that with with the political thing, especially in America. I think mm. it's like you know, you, you join a club, you join a tribe, and your this tribe does this, this, and this. Um, and yeah, I mean that's a quite a harmful thing to have because, and I think the whole intellectual dark web was originally around mm. being able to have those nuanced conversations. Yeah, yeah. And, like, I think this is sort of something I have a fair amount of experience with because for a lot of my teenage years, I was an absolutely diehard communist. Mm-hmm. I was a member of all the different ones, like Workers' Power, Workers' Liberty, all four million different tiny little communist parties mm-hmm. off in the basement of a pub reading Trotsky. And, like, um, it, is, it is literally like that. At least, with, you know, this is kind of the old school, like, sort of, like, I wish the Soviet Union still existed style communists. And they are all kind of, like, look... Trotsky predicted it here, he wrote it in advance, here's the explanation to everything. There is a bit of a cultishness sort of religiosity like to it, and I think the funny thing I found was I actually just, I went, like, I really liked arguing with, you know, the the capitalist swine about communism, because I found that, like, really fun, because it was like, you know, I kind of enjoyed the conflict of ideas, and then when I was hanging out with, like, other communists, where it was like, Trotsky said this, and we all agree, I was kind of like... This is really boring. Like, mm. I don't feel like I'm learning anything. Like, yeah, yeah. You know, this is just repeating the same thing over and over. And like, but I think you, you kind of, 
are getting a similar effect to that, but now across many different political ideologies, mm. not just the sort of radical fringe, that sort of now, if you identify with, um, like, say, liberals, but you say something that's slightly not liberal around your liberal friends, they'll be like, oh, whoa, like, don't go saying that. Yeah. Like, or if you, you know, if you're a conservative, and you, you might say, like, you know, I personally think, you know, abortion should be, should be legal. It's kind of like, wait, are you really a conservative kind of thing? And, um, and that's, Sort of, and I guess to be to to bring it into a very specific current example, we're in Britain right now. Brexit is a big issue. Like, there's really no discourse between Remainers and Brexiteers right now in this country. Yeah. Like, you have the Remainers who are, you know, these are both like wide groups, but they seem to have just hardened and hardened and hardened across to like more the the sort of further ends of what they think as yeah. time has gone by and now like you know talking with people who support Brexit the moment you kind of suggest like oh maybe it's a bad idea it's like nope there was a referendum we decided to leave you can't question it and then the, you know if you're talking with a Remainer and you're kind of like well we did already have a referendum they're like nope that was like corrupted there was bad news we need to have another one and yeah. you have the same effect that we like there's just no discourse about how to move forward and the two political parties that are trying to do something other than sit at one end of the spectrum, mm. i.e. Labour and the Conservatives, are in complete arrears because they aren't on one end of the spectrum, and that's what everyone wants. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, this kind of polarization is something we've talked about a lot on the channel, and I, I, I honestly, I feel the urge in myself to polarize. There's something in the air, I think. It's a lot easier to do that, and I think there's a constant uh, inner... Yeah, I feel like I have a constant inner... Um, checks and balances and having to step back and having to meditate and having to breathe and having to challenge my own thoughts to stay in a nuanced position. You know, I don't think anyone stays in a nuanced position and just get like, you just get to sit there and be like, woof, great. It's, it's constant. It's kind of more like sailing a ship and, and, and adapting and, and moving with it. Right. Um, and sometimes the bigger the wave, the more effort is required to keep the ship upright. Uh, and again, that comes back to the idea of sovereignty, um, because you need that sovereignty in order to... In fact, the ancient Greeks had... Um, there's a, a brilliant, brilliant writer called Peter Kingsley, who we will eventually interview. Uh, he just lives in France, so it's always been a little bit hard to get him while he's over here. Um, and he's a little bit... He doesn't do that many interviews. Um, but he wrote an incredible book called Reality, where he looked at the pre-Socratic philosophers, um, Empedocles and Parmenides, did a kind of rereading of them as almost uh, uh, kind of very advanced thinkers and almost shamanic thinkers as well, rather than what they've been painted as. But in any case, in this book, he talks about this concept of, um, and I'm probably not pronouncing it right, but it's M-E with a little thing over it, T-I-S in Greek, I think it's Metis. And it's this kind of, um, basically what we would now, I guess, call a flow state, a state of being totally in the moment and totally at one with your environment. And, and more than that is that you're able to see through the illusion it's like, it's like kind of ability and like kind of discernment as well. Like, I think they're able to see through the illusion of reality into true reality. And so the example, one example they give is like a, um, you know, a sailor on a ship. And it's just like a single person sailing boat where you're just completely at one with the flow of things and you're completely 
there and in it and present and able to react like it's similar in Zen you don't think of reacting you just move you know so there's another nice image of uh, which comes from I think a Zen story uh, where the Zen monks used to train the samurai to be like a barrel of water and so that means that anywhere the barrel is punctured the water just flows out you know it doesn't hesitate and stop and think about flowing out so if you can be in that space of total beingness uh, you are able to respond naturally to whatever comes up so if you're a samurai standing in a dark clearing and you hear a rustle you need to like move towards that immediately with your sword you don't go what was that was that a rustle I don't know it's more of like a what was it maybe a badger oh god maybe it's a ninja no it's probably not a ninja like you, you just can't do that you know you've got to be you're just only in it and there's some I think there's some um there's a lot of links between it's a very ancient idea you know and there's I think there's a reason flow is also really big now uh, you know Jamie Wheel has written a book about flow John Pervakey talks about flow there's a lot of kind of talk of it um and I think part of that, aside from the fact that flow is like a natural state we all get into and it's incredibly rewarding and enjoyable and it helps us be more creative and it helps us work together in a completely different way, mm. you know, it's a natural part of being human. But I think the reason, one reason that it's become more popular is that we are in such a storm, if we use the ship metaphor, we're in such a crazy, crazy storm that trying to go against the wind or trying to negotiate with it or trying to do anything like that doesn't really work and you've got to as Terence McKenna said ride the wave you know, you've got to move with it and something Jordan Greenhall talks about as well it's like not, not try and have an answer take a step back and, and be in a space where you can uh, discern a direction maybe uh, but yeah I, I do kind of agree with that I do feel that there's just, I mean, like, just even covering the culture wars over the last year or so, it's just fervent and unending, it seems. You know, it's a war. It's a war. It's a cultural war in the psyche. Mm. And in a war, it's it's chaotic. It's chaotic mm. and unpredictable, and it shifts very quickly. And so the best, yeah, I think one good tactic is to um, stay centered in all of that. Mm. Mm. I feel like we talked about this almost pull to polarize mm. which I have felt within myself I mean something that I was reminded of when you were speaking was once there's something going on with some kind of social justice warriors reacting to something and I was getting really annoyed by it and my mate goes you're getting triggered you're, yeah. just, you're just polarizing the other way and I was like oh shit this goes both ways you can't mm. just kind of be like okay they're wrong I'm right and mm. sit there in the kind of happy middle ground well, yeah. no rather you have to find the middle ground yeah. it's like I'm not trying to rely on othering anybody or mm. a feeling of resentment or justified yeah. um, superiority and I feel like you know growing up for a long time I must have kind of bounced from ideology to ideology. Mm. I went pretty extreme left when I was a teenager and Dylan and I were hanging out. But then I went pretty extreme right at one point mm. as well. And I was online reading kind of the Red Pill forums. And yeah. I like, well, these guys have got the answer. Like, men need to just become Superman again. And women are kind of like a, mm. a class that we need to just rule. And I was like, no, that's stupid as well. <laughs> um, and it's only recently that it started to become aware that actually strength comes from within mm, yeah and actually being able to sit with uncertainty and I think that is 
as I understand it, a root of a lot of the issues we're having at the moment is that it's very uncertain times and we're not good at sitting with uncertainty. People have called it the age of anxiety. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And in the face of uncertainty and anxiety, it's nice to have something firm to cling on to. Yes. Yeah. Alan Watts has this wonderful image of... Um, which funnily I thought I made up and then realized Alan Watts had said it like way before I was born. <laughs> and I'd probably heard him say it, but it's really great where you just imagine like you're born like and you're falling down towards the earth. Your lifetime, your 80 years or whatever of life is just a process of falling towards the ground. There's absolutely no way of avoiding that. There's no way that you're not going to hit the ground. But there's, there's all this other stuff falling with you. And you're like, you know, there's like a house or a couch or a car and you're like, fucking grab onto that. And then you can kind of, for a while, pretend like, yeah, I'm living in the house, I'm living in the house. But you're eventually going to hit that. And I think that's a big part of the dynamics as well in the culture is that yeah, I think you're right. No one likes to sit with uncertainty. I don't like to sit with uncertainty. Um, it's just, it's unpleasant. But there's a lot of things that are really unpleasant. And something meditation is really, really useful for is being able to sit with, uh, well, with pain and, and to switch the dynamic from seeking out pleasure and avoiding pain, which we are programmed to do as animals, mm. to, to neither seeking out or rejecting either and just being with both of them. And a part of that, well, a part of it in a meditation process is also uh, to say yes to pain. So in a, in a sense, kind of because we're so conditioned to it, you have to sometimes say, yes, bring it on. That can be really, really helpful and you kind of sit with it. And, uh, and that's why I think it's kind of a meditation can really be like a warrior's way in a lot of ways. You know, it's like you get, it's not easy. Um, neither are psychedelics if they're used correctly. You know, they're not... Um, they're not. They're often seen by like Buddhists as a shortcut, but anyone who thinks they're a shortcut, I think, hasn't really um, taken them or, or taken them in the right way. Let's say taking them in a way where you're use, really using them to ask hard questions of yourself and develop yourself, and and um, like let's say uh, burn away the dead wood, as Peterson said, you know, um, but that's not a, an easy process, and it's not easy to get people to do that. Uh, but it's really, really important, I think, because we, uh, yeah, because I think you see this in the the universities now, um, like what Jonathan Haidt and Greg Lukianoff wrote their book about the calling of the American mind, this kind of hypersensitive um, group of people or hypersensitive generation, let's say, who don't or have either never been taught or for whatever reason don't want to sit with anything that makes them feel uncomfortable. Mm. I need to be in, and that's really tied in with a lot of critical theory that um, I think has been twisted around as well, and that isn't healthy at all. I don't like. I don't mm. think that's remotely healthy, and in fact, it's not. There's one of the things they talk about in the book is that it's very similar to you know what people go to CBT to work through, right? black and white thinking, mm. um, catastrophization, etc. You get a whole worldview based around those things and that celebrates them which is bonkers you know mm -hmm. and that's why traditional like to take kind of integral studies framework the more traditional levels like something like Peterson is talking about he's kind of reviving traditionalism uh, becomes hugely appealing to people because they never um this guy Jeff Saltzman who said I think really cleverly there's a whole generation that grew up without any of the traditional traditionalist stuff like people who's grew up in the 50s, they came from a kind of traditional thing, and then they went in the 60s was when you broke free of it, 
you know, but it still had a basis for it. There is some sense now that um, there's a deep hunger for the good aspects of traditional values and even the idea of like fixed values and a right right and wrong um, and very simple. It come from a different level of development, um, but it's it's equally necessary. Like all every level of development we go through is it's a yes and. You don't just get rid of one. So mm. you have they all build on each other. So you can't have pluralistic free-flowing, everything is a construct, everything is hyper-relative. You can't have that without the basis of the traditional tribal um, kind of substrate. Otherwise, you just have nothing. Nothing has any value. Everything becomes like a Disneyland. It's not a lizard, yeah. yeah. Uh, but also, the things lose substance. Like, there's no meat in anything. There's no darkness. There's no... Or, like, darkness in the sense of, like, there's no... Um, it's the best word for it. There's no, like, aliveness to a lot of things. There's a kind of... And that's what happens when people are free to talk as well. Mm-hmm. And there's no, like... If you, uh, and I haven't been to a university campus in a while, but... <laughs> but my sense is that when, when you're afraid of what you're going to say and when you're afraid of anything that might come up, then... Uh, or, like, any kind of... You know, anything you say might be interpreted as you're a racist, you're a bigot, you're transphobic, you are gendering someone you shouldn't be gendering you're doing this you're doing that everything becomes a little bit numb and grey because you can't really be fully alive whereas like art that's really good art is like raw dangerous alive juicy provocative uh, provocative. yeah Yeah. it it challenges and it makes you uncomfortable Uh, but we don't have like when you take that away then you you enter this kind of sickly Disneyland crash, like um, like a nursery of some sort, mm. like where no one's allowed to uh, grow up. I think. Yeah. yeah. Have you read a book, Nervous States? No. You should absolutely read it. I think mm. you would love it. Is um, it by? It's know? I again. I cannot remember. I'll put the name in the uh, description. Yeah. I've got a copy of it at home, and he has a good chapter where he talks about exactly this, but slightly from a medical perspective, which is that, like. In recent, in the last sort of couple of decades, medicine has become very... A big part of medicine has become painkillers, has become mm. just getting rid of pain, has become sort of just returning people to a comfortable state. Yeah. Sort of in a way that isn't necessarily much to do with, like, what is actually wrong with them. It's just like, okay, well, we can get rid of your pain. And, you know, an obvious sort of consequence of this might be the opioid epidemic in the United yeah. States. But sort of this like move in medicine is is actually a recent thing. But mm. if you look historically, especially at sort of much older forms of medicine, you know, pain was viewed as kind of good. Mm. Like the pain lets you know what's wrong. The yeah. pain let, is is actually something that allows you to fix like a deeper issue. And sort of there's a there's a there's a quite dark analogy in our sort of recent culture that has decided that you know, the, one of the most important things is just getting rid of the pain without looking at the deeper issue. Mm. And and that and that attitude in medicine, I think, actually, it, it is not just in medicine. It's in it's in like our culture now as well. And you mm. kind of described it really well, which is that sort of we're kind of just looking for comfort now culturally. Yeah. We're just looking for like I can sit here in my box with all of this stuff that I'm cool with and everything outside of the box is bad and evil and just like keep it away and this attitude is not conducive to 
making a positive change in the world, I don't think, because I think um, uh, sort of a good sort of attitude that I kind of... I actually got this... This is funny. This is a quote from a video game. But, um, Which one? Uh, I play a lot of video games. Sorry. World in Conflict? It's really old. It was uh, okay. back in the... like same kind of time as Call of Duty 4. Mm. And there's a good bit where there's this one sort of commander who's a bit of like a rookie commander and his, his like sort of general really hates him because he's very inexperienced mm. and very rash. And he's like, at one point he's shouting like, yes, like kill them. And then the commander goes like, shut up. Like you need to start respecting your enemy. And it's like, why should we like respect the Soviets? They're animals. And he just says like, you know, if you don't respect your enemy, you'll never understand them. And if you never understand them, you're never going to defeat them. So in a way, like even if someone makes you really uncomfortable, even if yeah. someone says all this really horrible stuff that you think is really wrong, you have to respect them. Yeah, because yeah. even if you hate them, you're never going to actually defeat them. You're never going to. You're never mm. if you don't like respect their point of view and engage with it as something that someone who has a brain that functions has yeah. ended up thinking for reasons that are valid at least to them. Yeah, you know, and this is something that we really. I don't see people doing nowadays. Yeah. yeah, I think it's a really good point. It reminds me a bit of Ender's Game. I don't know if you've read Ender's Game. Oh, it's a movie. <laughs> yeah, the book is really, really... A movie I thought wasn't actually that bad. It got a lot of flack. I thought it was decent. I wasn't so keen. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, maybe I was just so happy to see an Ender's Game movie at last. But yeah, um, the book is way better, obviously, as always. But yeah, mm-hmm. that's a big theme in the book as well, is like really loving loving your enemy for a similar reason. It's, it's, um, it's a very tactical book it's very strategy focused like um but that i mean there's another reason as well which is that they're um a human being right and every aspect of them that we hate is is an aspect of ourselves that we haven't integrated you know that's what the shadow work we talk we talk so much about shadow work um, you guys were at uh you were at the doshin talk i was at the doshin yeah talk. yeah maybe let's just expand on that a little bit yeah you thought the, the i mean the shadow for anyone who's not familiar with it is a concept from Jungian psychology um it's, it's all the parts of ourselves that we reject and cut off and say that's not me so it could be anything often it might be say anger um uh or rage or you know jealousy or could also be a positive thing it could be vulnerability it's like i know i'm, I'm hard as nails i can't I, you know i think look at those weak disgusting people over there sharing their feelings uh or it could be the opposite it's i'm really soft and i'm really gentle and look at those horrible tough people over there being animalistic etc so when we have when we cut off an aspect of ourselves we kind of push it into our basement and we uh, it doesn't go away though so it gets projected out into the world around us and so we start seeing angry people everywhere we look well, it's like, why is everyone so angry at me you, know, you start projecting it outwards and you, you start um, also when you see that quality in someone you have this uh, disgust response like oh god because it's the most awful thing you, you're trying to get away from it uh, and the way to integrate the shadow well, well let's say why integrate the shadow right um, part of the reason is that it's like when we bring it in as a, a natural part of ourselves when we say go from a space of saying I'm never angry to anger is an aspect of me and is a healthy aspect and uh, if used correctly it's it could save my life one day you know um and, or it can help me assert my boundaries and I won't get walked all over and I'll be, you know, uh, healthier in myself. So that process of it, um, integral studies call it a three to one process. So first is an it, it's a three, and that's a third person. It's like, that's not me, it's out there. Number two is engaging with it. 
kind of what you're just talking about, you know, around you've got to engage with the thing you hate. And then by engaging with it, it gets you closer to the one, which is the first person, which is you see the world through its eyes. And I've had my most powerful inner experiences have been shadow work, where, um, and that seeing through its eyes is a super powerful process of like, um, it almost like feels like you're inhabiting, for me, it feels like I'm uh, inhabiting a subpersonality and literally seeing the world a bit differently, having a different response to the world. And then it becomes a part of me. I'm just, you never stop being you. It's just you have more of you and you have a new, it's almost like you have a new quality of yourself. Um, and, you know, Jordan Peterson calls it, it's kind of like having teeth. You have some, you know, it's, or another good metaphor is like a martial artist. You have some kind of, agency and control over this like energy inside yourself otherwise it comes out sideways in everyone you might be passive aggressive you might say something snippy you might give someone a compliment that's actually a, a big fuck you wrapped around in it you know it's just like it's all coming out passively passive like and, and not aware of it um and it also is a huge i mean some people would say it is what's going on right now in the culture is that everyone is seeing their shadow in everyone else. Trump is a perfect example. I, you know, like, mm. if, like, every baby boomer I know, and I'm not a big fan of Trump myself, but I just find the phenomena really interesting. Like, every baby boomer I know, everyone who grew up in the 50s and kind of early 60s, without fail, absolutely hates Trump. Mm. Um, partly because of their political stuff, but I think it's a deeper thing going on, is that Trump is kind of the shadow of the 50s in some way. Like, he, like the kind of He's like a he's like a man from the fifties in a way. Mm-hmm. There's everything they were trying to get away from in the sixties, everything they hated, everything they were protesting against, the authoritarianism, the the ignorance, all of that. Um, that they don't see in themselves. Mm-hmm. That they think they're the good guys. And no mm-hmm. no one is really the good guy. No one's a good guy, no one's a bad guy. But this is a thing that Jung, Carl Jung said this. He's like, no one's as good a person as they think they are. <laughs> like yeah. nobody. Um, that's a really which is quite a liberating thing. Oh, you think great. about it. Yeah. Yeah. Does it sound like it? That's why a lot of actors and actresses love playing the villain. It's so much fun. It's the most fun role to play because mm. we all want to play the villain somewhere. Look at the, one of the most, you know, biggest shows of all time is Breaking Bad. A, I mean, it's an incredible show, but also just the whole concept of that. It's a lot of shows like that out now of normal people getting into crime. Mm. No, it's like, it's, it's, and it always has been. It's like, and true crime is a huge genre because we all see some potentiality in ourselves to be that person. And we want to explore it in a safe way. We can explore it through fiction in a safe way. We can give a little bit of um, space for our shadow to breathe. Normally, alcohol is the way people get their shadow out. Um, and, you know, uh, Jekyll and Hyde is a, is is a metaphor for alcoholism, but that's one of the most striking examples of the shadow in literature. You know, have this upstanding doctor, and then you this brutish, hardcore, violent, uncivilized man who comes out of him, and they they couldn't be further apart, mm. but they have to kind of come into this uh, integration together in order to um, survive. You know, this is like it's like the the more pushed away your shadow is. The more uh, the more alien it seems to you, and so with the whole, I often think about this with the um, people who are heavily involved in activism and social justice and that particular worldview is that um, it might serve them to consider that maybe they're as racist, bigoted, um, aggressive, authoritarian as the people they hate, because. Mm everyone else can see it. 
<laughs> and it just seems very and, and it's just often that we can never we can't see our shadows it's a thing you can't see it's your shadow it's like your blind spot so there's like it needs to be approached with compassion as well because we all have shadows and you're just never done with your shadows you know like I had like my early 20s integrated a big shadow around kind of uh, aggression and sadism and that whole, whole energy but then it's like then the other shadow is like softness and vulnerability so okay integrate that and there's another shadow <laughs> it's like it's an ongoing process you never like transcend it you never get that but when it's really bad and it's affecting the people around you that's when I think you need to take the reflection from the outside and um, do that but I'm not sure there is much reflection going on in that regard in activist communities that I'm aware of I could be wrong but um, I don't see a lot of hey, maybe, um, yeah, maybe we need to take a long, hard look at ourselves, um, which would have been a really good thing for progressives to do after Trump and Brexit. That was yeah. part of this, what we started talking about on the channel. It was a big thing. Of, you know, Ken Wilber wrote this incredible piece that was really influential on um, David and my conversations. Um, yeah, Trump in a post-truth Trump world. Trump in a post-truth world, yeah, which yeah. I think everyone should read, which is just fantastic, um, which really lays out the whole dynamics at play and the necessity for this postmodern green in his language um, culture to look at the, you know it, that claims to be the most tolerant forgiving inclusive culture um, and yet couldn't tolerate include or forgive like 50% of the population that didn't live in metropolitan cities and think like they think mm. and went to the same universities and had the same aesthetics and had the same quote unquote like better or more evolved way of seeing things they didn't mm. have the more evolved way of seeing things yeah I think that's kind of a link to the definitely definitely a huge example of the shadow is but that you can see throughout everything is that most societies tend to be the opposite of what they claim to be hmm. and the really obvious one is the Victorians or absolutely the most unsexual no sex sexuality no we don't even get aroused like sex is purely for the purposes of reproduction and yet Victorian London had a colossal prostitution yeah you know and sort of you know everywhere you kind of see it that societies kind of are what they aren't and mm. aren't what they are yeah and I think I guess within that one the really obvious one is like oh we're the most tolerant we're the most accepting and in terms of race and culture and blah 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 yeah. but then it's like in the moment you sort of take that to it's like okay but what about what people think mm. it's actually the other way around they're, they're the most intolerant of yeah. you know um, stuff that is they've just found a different form of intolerance yeah. to, to, so that they could be the most tolerant in this way and claim to be the most tolerant but all of your intolerance is going to have to go somewhere you know yeah so yeah, yeah. Um, you know, it, it's, and it's, yeah, the, the solution to that, as you say, it's like integrating the shadow. It's just sort of like looking at yourself yeah. and trying to find your own flaws, which, you know, is something that I, I, I don't know. I wasn't around before I was born, surprisingly enough. <laughs> um, so I don't know what it was like in the past or if we were any good at this in the past, but I do think that in the future... We, that that's something that people need to get way better. Yeah, and I mean it could be taught in schools as well from a certain age. You know, just the mm. concepts of well, at least you know mindfulness is taught in schools, um, but mindfulness has also been really uh, say stripped of a lot as it's hit the West and it's a bit like cookie cutter and castrated, let's say, mm. from what it could be. Um, but 
it, it's better than nothing, I think. It's good that people are doing mindfulness in schools and mindfulness mm. is, is around. Um, but it's, yeah, I think it's a really good point. And it's, it's, no other thing is that the paradox of this is that it's exactly what I think we all need, but no one wants to do it because it's really, really embarrassing and painful. Yeah. <laughs> no one wants to do that. But, uh, often, I mean, people, we all have experiences where our shadows reflected to us. Most often when we, uh, from our intimate partners, or if you have a breakup or something, then you're going to hear all the shit that's, that people see about you, you know? Mm. It's a really good process. I've, I've learned a lot through processes like that, where you get a bubble burst, and it's like, oh, maybe I'm not that great. You know, that's a really, and I, I have that often in psychedelic experiences as well. Um, not recently, but that probably just means a really big one's coming. <laughs> but yeah, certainly I have over time, I had, I had many moments where like, actually I had a moment this week where I was like, oh, I'm pretty fucking selfish. You know, I just kind of had a realization of like thinking like justifying my own like focus on myself a lot in this one particular situation and then realized I was just being kind of a selfish dick actually <laughs> and it's like kind of and there is a certain quality to it for me when I when I really come to some realization like that uh, that it just feels very true and there's kind of something relaxes and something just becomes a lot more like yeah I can't deny that and it's safer in my own head than have to say it with someone else but it's very powerful to do it in a group this is part of what we do in the men's retreats as well you know it's really powerful to have that a uh, very supportive environment in which you can really go to those dark places with one another. And because we see, we have all got them and probably we all have really similar ones too. Mm. You know? So that's like, that is really key. And it's not as nearly as difficult as it seems once you start doing it, you know, because, uh, we, I think often we, I, I often have the feeling that like whatever thing I have in myself or whatever weird neurosis is just mine and no one else on the planet shares it. And then you realize that, like, no, everyone does. <laughs> We're not, like, in terms of our inner worlds, there's patterns that are shared with, with all of us, even though the content can be wildly different and there's a huge variation to how we respond to trauma or how we, um, our personalities, and it's like a really rich, interesting tapestry. But also, we all want certain things. We all need to be loved. We're all looking for connection. We're all looking for social status. We're all looking for loads of different things and that we share them and then things it's, it's a paradox as well they're both really different and really similar so that's why I think the, the group work is, is really an important part of this whole conversation why why with Rebel Wisdom we're so big on it is because like in order to have the conversations that need to be had I think we need to incorporate that kind of work because the conversations immediately start going away from the intellectual very quickly and it goes into something deeper than that into our moral framework into our you know our biographical past into our traumas into our you know our perceptions and even there's been some interesting studies around and Jonathan Haidt also has talked about this quite a lot, but around how influenced our politics are by our just temperament and like how we score the big five personality traits. Like I know that I'm more right leaning because of my personality traits. Like mm. I just know. Yeah. I just know. I can I can map. Why do I think people should be more independent and not have government support? Why do I think authority is? Um, inherently evil and can't be trusted, etc. Cetera, etc. Cetera. All of these things, I could apply them to the way I approach myself and my own life and my in my relationships. You know, mm-hmm. this is way too similar to be coincidental. You know, and I think that's I think probably true very often. It's it's there's a kind of there's one intellectual level where it's like 
yeah, okay, this would be a good policy, this, 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 I believe this. But it was much more values-based. And actually, The Righteous Mind, Jonathan Haidt is really good on that, just kind of, I think, pretty definitively shows that. So if that is the case, and our political beliefs are, are so influenced by our temperament and, like, say, like, openness, agreeability, whatever uh, other personality traits, then... It's not the right level to be talking at, I think, because yeah. you're not going to you're not going to convince someone. Uh, yeah. He uses the elephant, yeah, this this metaphor of the elephant and the rider. So your unconscious being the elephant and the conscious mind being the the person riding the elephant, and like the person is not really in charge of the elephant. The person takes the cues from the elephant, goes in whatever direction the elephant's going in, and then makes a an argument to support that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So yeah. Well, I guess, yeah, it makes me think of something that used to confuse me when I was growing up, because being around people and families who were like, I could never, ever vote Tory. Mm. Tories, even, being around social circumstances as well, where it's like mm. anathema to mention any of that. Tories, and I would be like, Tories, how is it possible that half of the population of our country are evil? Yeah, yeah. Mm. And that half of them vote for this thing. Is it that just like half of everybody is a complete idiot? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that never really stuck with me, but it just took me so long to actually work out that kind of, as you said, I think politics is a reflection of people's values and personalities. Yeah. People's values and personalities are different. Mm. I feel like that is a hard idea to grasp in a culture that a lot of people seem to be interested in this sort of like tabula rasa, blank slate idea of human, yeah. of human psyches and human personalities that anything kind of can be anything and anything goes yeah. so there is one true way of doing things and that's the right way yeah. you either have it or you don't yes yeah and, and we know pretty conclusively from what I understand from biology that we're not blank slates we are well, I think Brett Weinstein said it really well he said we're the blankest slates out there you know <laughs> and we have we know a lot that neuroplasticity plays a huge role and you're not kind of like it's not all nature. It's it's all nature nurture, but we we're certainly it's not just all nurture. We are definitely which, but that's a political idea because it fits in with social constructivism. It's like if we're all nurture, then the whole social constructivism thing makes sense. Um, which is why you see people trying to getting. <laughs> I always laugh at this. People trying to raise their babies genderless, and then like the little girl wants to play with dolls, the little boy wants to play with cars, and they're like, "Oh, they must have, they must have picked it up from the outside somewhere." <laughs> like it's like a sort of disease. It was like, no, it's because of gender differences, you know. Hmm. Um, and there's a there's a there's a kind of fluidity to that where it's like, yeah, you don't want to force a child into a certain role. It's like they should be an authentic individual who finds their own unique expression of whatever it is for them mm. to be their gender but the the kind of extreme of it of yeah I just find it funny because it's just I just imagine them sitting there like sealing the windows like don't watch that TV no it's been gendered no. it's like you can't they've even done in utero um uh there was a study recently I can't remember but showing significant in utero differences between men and women and even mm. Gilchrist was just at a thing he was doing a seminar and he was saying like even the, with the left brain and the right brain uh, the presence of testosterone is what it makes the right brain slightly larger in men I think he said like we're mm. asymmetrical um, and it like there are significant biological uh, differences that just can't be ignored mm. that social constructivism tries to just completely ignore which is 
the weirdest thing about the, for me the weirdest thing about these culture wars is it's just like a blind ignorance and has no academia no true academia around it it's like a religion and academia mm. because real academia should be around finding the truth it's like oh well this isn't true okay because there's too much attachment around it academics are too attached to their ideas um mm. and yeah i guess that kind of ties into sort of like what you're saying about sort of sort of how your political views are actually kind of just a reflection of your personality mm. which is um I, I guess in this context it would be that like I think a lot of people out there, certainly myself included, like, I would really, really like to believe that everyone is a blank slate and that, like, literally, like, there, there's something almost comforting about, like, believing that mm. it's 100% social construct, that everything that goes into your brain is socially constructed, because then you have this really nice basis upon which to say that all inequality is bad. And if you're someone yeah. who doesn't like inequality because of your personality, which I certainly am, like, that's really nice and simple. Mm. You know, it makes, it really just breaks everything down to this nice little principle that you can just believe and it's very unassailable. Yeah. And so then that's why kind of the moment that someone goes like, oh, but what about these biological differences? Then it's not just that kind of like, you know, saying that, oh, maybe you'll, like, might be wrong about the whole blank slate thing. It's like, everything you've built on top of that whole blank slate thing is about to come crashing down. Yeah. You know? And, like, if you had maybe found some other foundations as well, then you would be able to deal with someone knocking this over and be like, okay, you know, I will admit the possibility of being wrong about that. It doesn't have to, you yeah. know, annihilate my worldview. It's just when you build too much upon one foundation, mm. because that's a really nice, really easy, really simple foundation to build yeah. all this great, lovely, inclusive stuff onto. Yeah. Um, that, that you kind of get the problem. And in a way, I guess you could say it's like a lack of nuance. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I think it's totally true. People like, we all like really easy ideas. Like I used to be like super libertarian and that was a really nice, simple, simple worldview to have for a while. Before. But then, then, then I think there, there's a cognitive dissonance that develops where there, as in enough things come to contradict the worldview that are glaringly obvious. And I, for one, always found it tortuous to have cognitive dissonance against my worldview. Mm-hmm. I used to be really new agey and then, kind of considered like darkness and my own darkness and, and you know, lots of different things um, and realized, oh, this whole new age thing is like a lot of the world is actually not the way they say it is, you know, of like manifest and like this and that and like, oh yeah, mm-hmm. healing and like crystals and like, and this is when I was like 18, 19 mm-hmm. and, I, and then I, enough things came in that I was like, wow, the world is also a very dark, unfair place. Mm-hmm. Um, and you can manifest all you want, but you might be born into a slum somewhere or you can manifest all you want and you, bad shit will happen to you. Yeah. yeah. So, so, so something is missing from this worldview. Um, and then same, similar with the libertarian side of things as well. I think I, when I was like super libertarian, I had an uncle who was like, what about your clothes that you're wearing? Because I was like super individual, you know, like it's like, well, it was like, yeah, I mean, a community, you need a community around you where there's like a mutual back and forth. Without a community, if you're just hyper individual, you're like, who's going to make your clothes for you? Who's going to, water pumping through, you know, so that, I remember that I was like, hmm. And I kind of sat with, obviously you re- rejected in the moment. Yeah. <laughs> and then it, and then it kind of seeps, yeah. seeps through. Yeah. I remember having a moment like that. So I, 
I studied in Bristol and I was very hippie and into mm. drug taking and mm. music and long hair and wearing in Bristol how strange <laughs> <laughs> you must have just stood out like a sore thumb before that I was really into heavy metal so again I was into the kind of like the grit and the darkness yeah. as well but I think in Bristol I kind of was like okay no that's not there everything's kind of cool yeah. and great and happy but then I was travelling in India for two and a half mm. months at the end of 2016 again kind of hippie like, yeah. silly thing but um, being there like I kind of spent half my time in the in the traveller uh, hostels yeah. around people but then you see the poverty there and as well and it's like okay it's not just this romantic um, yeah. psychedelic new agey haven and then the moment it really came to a head was I was in Goa and there was a beach bar and there was an open mic and I was like okay fuck it I'm going to play a song mm. and I played one of my songs which is actually quite a dark song yeah. um, like the chorus goes like when the skyline crashes down at our feet and the monuments of man turn to dust mm. etc and I finished it and I I was like, yeah, and then this Dutch hippie dude who ran the bar came up to him and was like, dude, that's not really the vibe. <laughs> <laughs> and that was the moment I was like, it was like at the end of my two and a half months in India, and I was like, the bubble has burst. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah, brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that's, that's the kind of, this kind of thing of not being able to handle that or not being I can understand on one level it's like this is this type of bar fair enough but if we just expanded the Dutch, Dutch guy out to a whole worldview which probably mm. shouldn't do because I'm sure he just was trying to okay you have a nice nice place for the, for the people to smoke <laughs> but he but yeah that, that kind of thing of not being able to handle or like integrate darkness and like that's another thing of the Jordan Peterson phenomena it's like he, he's kind of biblical I mean I think too far but he's like biblical in his kind of how awful things are and the kind of the, like the struggle for me it's like suffering. life is suffering like, which life is so you know there's truth in it 100% but it's just kind of like I remember at the time especially like when the phenomenon was going more than it is now I was like yeah this is so hitting a spot right now for me as well like it is and then it then it um but it's not the whole truth either you know it's everything is it's a kind of a partial truth mm. and it's that um yeah just that hard graft and that recognition because the humility comes with that and that humility is a great antidote for narcissism which we have in the culture loads and loads and loads so when there's lots of narcissism you need something that brings in lots of humility and hopefully that balances itself out in some way and there's some kind of synthesis between that yeah mm. how can we work on our humility asking the wrong person <laughs> uh, I think I actually think prayer which might not be the answer you expected but uh, I think prayer is a really important one I think um, what the most important thing in my experience is that the ego has something higher than the ego to submit to. Uh, ironically, Islam means submission. So there's this, you know, there's obviously a massive um, precedent in all the Abrahamic religions to this and, and pretty much every religion. Mm. I can't think of a religion that goes, your ego is the be all and end all and there's nothing more than you. Except our culture, actually. Our culture Satanism, does that. Maybe. Maybe Satanism, yeah. <laughs> Although they're actually quite cool as well. They're quite like, yeah. 
So that that is essential, I think. And it doesn't have to be something metaphysical if that's not your bag. It could be, you know, Randall Fiennes, the explorer, I heard him talking one time and he said that, you know, in all his like mountaineering and stuff, he realized that he had to have something higher than himself or he just wasn't going to make it. Like, mm. He had to have something to appeal to. So for him, it was the legacy of his father and grandfather who were both like hardcore, I think, explorers or like, you know, been each in two wars and were just, you know, mm. the legacy of that, not letting them down. That is powerful enough. But that, again, that is a higher thing than him. It's higher than both of them as well. It's, it's, it's your ancestry. It's your, you know, um, uh, for many, many cultures around the world has been the thing as your ancestors uh, I love this thing or, or it could be something that is is a transcendent ideal you know or it could be truth or it could be a value you know something that's higher than just the ego um, I like the idea of it being our ancestors because we all share them probably we all share a few of them you know and Terence McKenna used to have to say this thing where he said like we just imagine all of the millions of years of evolution and then all the hundreds of thousands of years of, of kind of uh, homo sapiens and all the struggles they went through and all the famines and all the wars and all the ups and downs and they just never dropped the ball and we're here now it's like we can't be the generation that drops the ball mm. because just that's not on right <laughs> just, it creates this responsibility mm. that there's something that is uh, that we're responsible for that is beyond all of us and that it kind of goes to our children and our children's children and like that I think would be a cool starting point because then everyone can get everyone can get down with that you know um, so yeah something higher than the ego I think is the key thing mm. yeah I think that definitely sort of appeals to sort of if you then look at political, if you're doing the whole looking at political beliefs that is an extension of people's personality, you can create something that's sort of higher than the ego, mm-hmm. something that for people to value, something that in in a way you know is gonna is is gonna sort of take people of potentially many different personalities, but then put them into the same sort mm-hmm. of general set of feelings. Yeah, that's kind of a route towards more less just you know more political cohesion, more yeah. sort of... If people... I guess one thing I noticed after, like, a decade of arguing with people about politics, because I studied politics and I was mm. really radical and I had all these North American sort of, like, family people who were like, it doesn't work, Dylan! And I'm like, it's a talk again! The one thing I did realize is that, actually, if you put forward your political beliefs not as, like, look at the logic, look at look at how perfectly it fits mm. together, look at why I believe it, instead you kind of, like, work out, well, what is it that you like? How do I sell what I'm promoting as making the world yeah. into a place that you're going yeah. to like based on your values. Definitely. You know, and then it, I think if we can actually get people to sort of get on board with, with, with I mean, you know, it, it, it's hard to not be too sort of deconstructionist mm. and, and sort of try and go really, really low into the most, like, oh, what is the lowest common denominator? But yeah. have something that's not the lowest common denominator, but that does get as many people as possible on board with, like, some kind of higher value, then I think we would see more more ability of people to actually disagree about stuff, but in a, mm. in a, in a, in a with a, with a, with an element of sort of understanding and tolerance. Yeah. Just wondering, I mean, I think it's a really good point. It's something, uh, David and I have talked about a lot, especially early on in the project. It's like, what is that lowest common denominator value that you could get people to, uh, Mm. that we could all kind of get behind? It's a tricky one. Um, But like, 
sports is interesting. I'm not sure that that's the answer, but you know, mm-hmm. sports is, is an interesting one because people do get behind that and it does transcend, uh, you know, different um, political beliefs, for example. But on a more, I don't know, metaphysical level, it, something like truth seems very appealing but it's very abstract as well if everyone like commits to the truth then it's like uh, it's a little bit abstract and then is it is it I mean for for some people it's justice right the social justice thing is it's like it's it's some form of um, perceived justice in the world and fairness um, and fairness is a real tricky one I don't think that works either because like Jonathan Haidt talks about that in The Righteous Mind again where it's, it's kind of the, uh, that's one of five moral kind of taste buds, if you will, fairness. And that but it's very high in liberal uh, or like progressive people. Um, but it's not the only one. There's also sanctity. There's also ones that conservatives have that liberals just don't really rank very highly on. So mm. you, you, one of those values doesn't really work because then you have different people who are like, mm. and also everyone believes in fairness. Yeah. Everyone believes in fairness, but have a very different idea of what's fair and what's not fair. Mm. You know, like some people think it's, it's fair for the government to help people pull themselves up by the bootstraps. Other people think that's unfair because then that money's being taken away from other people who worked hard for it and that's been given. So like, mm. but they all very much believe that their their version is fair. Like no one, yeah. no one really thinks that, or very few people I think, think that their view is uh, wrong and selfish and just wrong, but they're going to have it anyway. <laughs> Fuck you all. Like, I'm just, I'm just a bad guy. Yeah. No, everyone believes that they're doing, or most people, I think, believe that they're doing the right thing. Mm. Um, mm-hmm. Cool. Mm. Um, and I was, actually, just one sort of quick point that um, I had actually thought about this as well in terms of, like, what is some kind of value that we can get everyone on board with. And I think, sort of, in having a lot of political discussions, I realized we do have a sort of lowest common denominator value, it's a really bad one. Mm. The, lowest common denominator ha- the, the, the lowest common denominator value we have is death is bad. Mm. Yeah. And if you're, if people aren't dying, that's good. But that's kind of a, that's, I feel like that's like literally just because maybe there's something that inherent that prevents us from not having a lowest common denominator mm. value, but it's too low. Yeah. Mm. We're just like, just about everyone fears death or at least doesn't want people around them to die. Yeah. But then you just have such a hard time building anything constructive off of that because like, you know, really because you you know, you can just hook everyone up to life support machines and then the least number of people are dying and so that's utopia and like, you know, I think we need to sort of find a denominator that's higher that still gets people on board, but that's higher, that's sort of bigger, that you can build more mm. intuitive things off of. Yeah, I mean, Maybe. it's interesting, because death being... I don't think death is bad, personally, but mm. I, I, I know what you're saying, though, like, in the culture, it's, it's like, um, uh, preventing harm, which is another, yeah. like, one of the moral matrices. Um, but uh, it's an interesting point, because I think one of the saving... One, one thing that could really help culture is uh, to uh, embrace death and realize that death is the one certainty. It is, it is a meta, it is a kind of the one certainty you have in your life is that you're going to die. And so no matter how post-truth the world gets, that's always true. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's actually also a hugely liberating thing because once, uh, you know, 
a lot of people like Eckhart Tolle has a phrase, you know, meditation is about learning how to die before you die. Um, and for me, that's what meditation is. It's like, so that when it's about letting go, it's about mm. letting go of holding on. And death is the ultimate clinging thing. I mean, we're always going to be clinging to life. You know, the ego is always going to be doing that. But uh, being able to uh, not avoid death and being able to celebrate death and being able to recognize it as this actually incredible gift because when you realize you're going to die then everything actually it's just there's this there's a wonderful zen story around it so there's a guy and he's in the, he's in the jungle and he's looking uh he's just kind of walking around and he hears this rustle behind him turns around there's a huge hungry tiger so he's like fuck starts running 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 the tiger's like just like inches away from him and the jungle ends it's this huge cliff and he just jumps off and he grabs a vine and he's hanging there and the tiger is just above him uh, and just kind of drooling on him and he looks down and there's like a big crevasse and there's like ten more tigers down there he's like fuck and then he, he you know and then he looks at the vine the vine starts to fray and he sees a strawberry going off the side of the cliff beside him and he goes oh and he like picks it and he closes his eyes and bites into it and it's like the most incredible strawberry he's ever eaten <laughs> that's the state of the story right? <laughs> so uh, yeah I like and that is kind of like the zen approach to death it's like he, like Death is the only thing that makes life meaningful, in my opinion. Without death, that's why I hate transhumanism, and I think they're all um, cowards, basically. Uh, because they don't want to face death. They want to live forever. Like, why would you want to live forever? I just don't understand it. For me, I'm just... Like, the only thing that makes it fun to be alive is the fact that it's impermanent, and the fact that this could be the last time I ever have a conversation. This could be the last time I ever kiss my wife. This could be the last time I eat a strawberry. Like, getting into that mindset... And it's not a mindset I would say is easy to be in all the time, but even if it's just for like 10 minutes a day or two minutes a day or a second a day, that completely transforms perception, the way we perceive reality, completely transforms how much things matter, like someone disagreeing with you politically. You know, it's, it's everything becomes more of a game and more of a dance because the biggest fear is already, um, the biggest elephant in the room has already been named. And so everything after that, everything else is uh, everything else is a lesser fear. That's why so many practices practice dying before you die. There's you know, this practice called incubation, which is uh, the Sufis use a lot, which is you just lie in a cave for days on end, and someone comes and brings you like a toilet bowl and a you know some like dates and some water, and you just pretend to be dead for in pitch darkness for uh, you know I don't know how many however many days depending, but you know you just and it was a way people at their wit's end came and rejuvenated themselves like a reset it's like kind of uh, in video game wise it's kind of almost like you're going to a previous save <laughs> it's like Oof! and then you kind of reset and you kind of rejuvenate and come out so I so said we kind of lost that in our culture a lot um, and we probably I think we need it back it's really hard to sell Even when I was teaching meditation regularly I would bring it up sometimes in a class um, you know training people and just like the, the shivers, you know, I'd be like, you know, this is, this practice isn't really about relaxation, it's all about um, preparing to die. People <laughs> 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 were like, what the fuck? Not what I was so, <laughs> so probably I could have delivered it in a different way. But it was like, I was kind of like testing the water as well, but it's really hard to get people to, it's really challenging because it's like our ultimate fear. Um, yeah. I, I mean, I'm not like, I don't want to die, but especially like people, I love dying is a very scary thought as well. But, um, 
I think it's always like follow what the energy is. If there's a lot of like tension in that, it's like, okay, well, there's something in this. There's something in this about kind of like looking at it. It's like a lifelong process. It's not like you can just like spend a weekend coming to terms with your own mortality and then you're like, ooh, that's done. I'm going to play some Xbox. Like, it's, <laughs> it's a lifelong practice, you know, mm. so that, uh, and it gets, and it's a slow progression, but really joyful one, I think. Mm. Yeah. Wow. I mean, Ali, so the final question we ask all our guests is what's something you think all people, and especially young people, should know about the future? I feel like you've kind of preempted it. <laughs> I'm going to steal someone else's. I'm going to steal Gurdjieff's one, uh, the, the great mystic Gurdjieff. And he said, uh, the most important thing to remember is that you and everyone you meet today will soon be dead. Mm. <laughs> and on that, I think we should wind up. Ali, thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. It's been yes. lots of fun. Thanks, guys. It's been amazing. Uh, is there anything you want to plug? Uh, no, just go to Watch Rebel Wisdom. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, Google, uh, YouTube Rebel Wisdom or we're, um, just Google Rebel Wisdom. We've got a lot of um, great content out and lots more coming out very soon. Fantastic. Yes. Awesome. Thank you very much. Cheers. See you guys in the next episode. Thank you.